Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the reporter who, in several interviews with Marjorie Taylor Greene, was told by her that she is in continuous discussions with Donald Trump to be his vice president should he run again, which appears to be increasingly likely. Joining us is Robert Draper, who has been a writer at large for the New York Times magazine since 2008 and a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine since 2007. He is the author of several books, including the New York Times best-selling biography, Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush. His latest book, just out, is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And we'll discuss his cover story in Sunday's New York Times magazine, The Problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene, What the Rise of the Far-Right Congresswoman Means for the House, the GOP, and the Nation. Then we'll assess the background and credentials of Rishi Sunak, who is the third Prime Minister in less than two months in a revolving door of British leaders from a deeply unpopular Conservative Party. Richer than the new king, Rishi Sunak will take over a country still crippled by the self-inflicted wound of Brexit and now in the midst of a political and economic crisis. Joining us is Quinn Slobodian a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, and his forthcoming book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. And he will discuss his recent article at the New York Times, Liz Trust Believed in Markets, But the Markets Did Not Believe in Her. Then finally, we look into the announcement today by Attorney General Garland of U.S. charges against 10 PRC communist government officials and intelligence officers accused of trying to steal secrets, punish critics, and recruit spies. Joining us is Victor Xi, a professor in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He is currently engaged in a study on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. The author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation. His latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. And joining us now, Robert Draper, who has been a writer at large for the New York Times magazine since 2008 and a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine since 2007. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times best-selling biography, Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush. His latest book just out is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And he has a cover article in Sunday's New York Times magazine, The Problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene what the rise of the far-right congresswoman means for the House, the GOP, and the nation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Draper. Thanks for having me back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Robert. And has anybody done any polling in terms of the breakdown in this country between the educated and the less educated? Well, there have been surveys, surveys that have indicated that less educated white working class voters continue to maintain a fidelity for Donald Trump that is 
notable and sustained over a lengthy period of time. But, and, and it's also abundantly clear that the Democratic Party has really lost those voters. And there doesn't seem to be any coherent plan on the part of the party to find a way to get them back. Well, indeed, John F. Kennedy lost college-educated voters by a two-to-one margin, and yet won the presidency thanks to an overwhelming support among white voters without a degree. And 60 years later, our second uh, Catholic president, Biden, is losing non-college-educated whites by a two-to-one margin while securing 60% of the college-educated vote. So your father's GOP used to be the party of educated Americans. That's right. Yeah. And, and you're referencing my father's GOP because, in fact, as I mentioned in the preface of my book, Ian, my father was a loyal Republican all the way up to his death. And and uh, and yeah, it was axiomatic uh, back in those days, throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, that the less educated working class um, voters tended to skew Democratic. Uh, many of those were union voters, for example. But uh, that all began to change in the early 1990s, and there was a combination of a cultural and economic phenomena that conspired to bring about that change. Uh, what's notable, though, is that um, once that change happened, it, it happened solidly. And now at the same time, um, what's notable about, say, the Trump phenomenon uh, opposed to, say, when Mitt Romney ran for president, is that Trump has decidedly lost the college-educated voter, but really maintains a stranglehold over those who are less educated. So the Democratic Party, I think, has gleaned from that disparity, among other things, that this is just a natural polarity uh, in our body politic, and this is our electorate, and um, we're going to do our level best to maximize turnout um, without putting forward really any program that might appeal uh, to those who've gone the way of Trump. I, I think also, um, you know, the, to be fair, it's not as if the Republican Party has done a whole lot of reach out effort either towards um, those voters who skewed Democratic. And uh, that's just the polarity that now confronts us as a nation. Well, it's not that they haven't reached out to GOP. Isn't it the party of trolling? I mean, isn't it really about the messaging of culture wars, owning the libs? That seems to well, be, I don't know what their yeah. platform is. I mean. No, no, that's right. Well, yeah, as I write about in my book, after 2012, uh, you know, the Republican Party uh, was confronted with a really, really difficult task, politically speaking. Uh, it's difficult in, in human affairs, too, and that's um, to try to convince people who don't like you to like you. And Donald Trump, when he ran for office, in effect, presented a very different uh, and easier path. And that was um, uh, to ignore or really to demonize those people who don't like you. Um, uh, maybe even to make them hate you, but to make the people who like you love you, and and that's in essence what Trumpism has been about. And it's this you know kind of populist demagoguery that fingers the other people, um, not just as someone you know you fail to persuade, but someone you would never want to persuade, as you're saying, and as someone uh, who essentially is a um, you, you can cast in demonic terms. But just going back to the education divide, the other divide, of course, is the reality divide. You've got 
a reality-based community in post-truth America, and then you've got the unreality-based community that that you've written about, Robert Draper, in your new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, when the Republican Party lost its mind. So what's the genesis of that? Do you have to go back to, again, going back to Kennedy, but maybe a little later, when most Americans got their news from Walter Cronkite, but now they do reality shopping and they get their news, you know, conservatives from Fox, liberals from MSNBC. And, of course, the Internet's played a huge role because... I think something like two-thirds or three-quarters of people get their, their information from Facebook. And, of course, they don't have the responsibility that journalists have of, of printing something that you can actually prove as opposed to something you feel. So you have this, the idea that these big tech giants like Zuckerberg and, and Elon Musk don't have to take responsibility for anything that, because they're not publishers. So... Is that a change that has affected the discussion we're having? Well, you're correct, Ian, that um, the preoccupying theme of my book is the mass delusion that's taken place within the Republican Party, a, a true delusion on mass. Uh, the book, however, it's not a history book. It's not how the Republican Party lost its mind. It's when the Republican Party lost its mind. And so I focus on... Um, uh, rather than uh, try to ferret through, say, the last 50 years of history of the Republican Party, instead focus on the 18 months that began with January 6th. I mean, to, to grapple with your question a little bit about how all this came to be, it certainly is true that um, the decline of trust in institutions across the board, and not just limited to the media, uh, has been part of this and has made swaths of America ripe for Trumpism. Uh, I wrote previously about Bush's decision to invade Iraq, and I think that um, uh, that debacle uh, enabled the rise of a uh, reality TV show um, uh, star uh, and Manhattan developer named Donald Trump with no political experience whatsoever because he could say, you know, look what experience got us. Look at what the so-called experts led us to. And the death of expertise um, enabled his rise, but it also um, cemented uh, his hold over a public that uh, had lost trust in political institutions, lost trust in, in information institutions, uh, but it also had been embracing grievances over time to the extent that when Donald Trump could claim in 2020 uh, that uh, uh, the election's been stolen from me, he could also be claiming, in effect, that the election has been stolen from you since this public uh, that uh, was so in the sway of Donald Trump uh, really did believe that that America, as they knew it, had been taken away from them, um, essentially by true theft, and that the election was an apotheosis of that, but by no means limited to it. So so I'd say that, that this this belief in loss combined with um, the demonization of those who they believe had stolen things from them, aided and abetted by the erosion of trust in government and media institutions, all helped create the situation where we are today. 
And again, I'm speaking with Robert Draper, who's been a writer at large with the New York Times magazine since 2008 and a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine since 2007. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times bestselling biography, Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush. And his latest book just out is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And he has the cover article in Sunday's New York Times magazine, The Problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene, What the Rise of the Far-Right Congresswoman Means for the House, the GOP, and the Nation. And your new book, Robert Draper, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind, covers a sort of territory in Washington uh, in the 18 months after January the 6th, but it starts out with uh, Chapter 1, the Patriot Dentist profiling Paul Gosar, who rose to object to the certification of Joe Biden's victory before Vice President Pence, and then he was seconded, as as is required in the Constitution, by Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, and then he just sort of spouted all of this, the lies, right? The, the big lies that Trump has hoisted, which have metastasized into a core belief for the Republican Party. And then shortly thereafter, the place was overrun by insurrectionists. Yeah. But he still stands by the delusions that he spouted before the joint session. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, this is also a, a big part of my book that um, these delusions persist, um, not just because people believe them, but also because there are influencers in the form of elected officials like Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, who have a powerful incentive structure to perpetuate these delusions. Um, they, uh, by incentive structure, I mean that the Republican Party base believes this stuff. And so if you say it, um, you'll prosper. If you, uh, if, if you say otherwise, uh, you stand a good chance of being defeated, of being primaried to the right. But in addition to uh, that very direct political benefit. Um, there's also a financial political benefit and, and um, in the form of online donations. To say over and over that, that um, the radical communist Democrats um, stole or stealing our beloved America away from us uh, in the shrillest possible terms is the best way to gain financial support in the online community. Uh, and, and I should also add that for those who are not holding office. There is a real cottage industry that has crept up in which going around, you know, from state to state uh, and speaking to groups at conventions uh, that are all about um, how America is going down the tubes because of the communist Democrats and the lying swamp dwelling members of the media, um, this stuff pays. And uh, I mean, it, people are literally making a living off of spouting these lies. And so um, so all that's to say that, that these individuals aren't going to learn their lesson as long as there is no incentive towards learning the lesson, instead a powerful disincentive to learning it. Um, they'll continue embracing the big lie and its adjacent lies because um, that's what works for them. Well, in the case of Paul Gosar, of course, his entire family, it seems, took part in TV commercials warning voters against him. Similarly, I believe it's happening with Adam Laxalt, who's running for the Senate in Nevada, and he looks like he's creeping ahead of the Democrat, who seems to be the most vulnerable in terms of Democrats for the Senate. So having your own family basically excommunicate you doesn't seem to affect things. But 
in the in the article in Sunday's New York Times magazine, the problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene, what the rise of the far right congresswoman means for the House, the GOP, and the nation, which is also a part of your book, you talk about when she appeared at this Republican conference and then went on with all of these conspiracies about Seth Rich being murdered by John Podesta and all of the stuff about the Clintons worshipping Satan and child trafficking, pedophilia, all this QAnon stuff. And at that meeting, of course, the Republicans focused on kicking out Liz Cheney and they gave a standing ovation to Marjorie Taylor Greene. So when did that Rubicon cross in terms of delusion? Well, I mean, that was, so just a couple of things, Ian, for one thing, the, the, um, the story you're referring to in the New York Times Magazine is actually an excerpt of, of, oh. uh, of my book. And it's, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is a principal character in my book, because to follow her trajectory, a rather unlikely trajectory of a kind of, you know, um, affluent, QAnon-obsessed housewife who seemingly flukishly becomes elected to uh, Congress, and then a year, year and a half later, is one of the dominant forces of the Republican Party. Is a lot of you know is is kind of a, a case study in Republican politics in the Trump era. But what you're referring to specifically is a conference that took place in February of 2021, just a month into Fresh Woman uh, uh, Green's tenure in Congress, principally to consider. Liz Cheney, who was the conference chair at the time of the Republican Party, a position of leadership, an ascendant Republican, but one who had voted um, to impeach uh, Donald Trump and repeatedly denounced him thereafter. Um, this felt like a, uh, a slight to a lot of Republicans, and they um, called this conference to discuss whether or not to remove her from leadership, which at the end of that conference didn't occur, but would occur months later. But it happened that just in the days previous to that, a bunch of old social media posts of then citizen Marjorie Taylor Greene surfaced that related to the things you just listed. Um, uh, Really, really crazy conspiracy theories about, you know, the Clintons being uh, murdering people left and right and Obama having uh, the uh, Latino gang MS-13 out to kill people as well and a bunch of other just outlandish stuff. And uh, Bud Green uh, gave this speech at the conference that explained all this stuff away, basically saying, well, you know, um, CNN and The New York Times have lied so repeatedly about um, about Trump and about the Russia collusion hoax that I, as a citizen, couldn't trust the mainstream media anymore. So I started looking online for my own information, and that's where I stumbled upon QAnon. And by the end of this explanation and, and her only half-heartedly apologizing, as you're saying, a lot of Republicans stood up and applauded, and uh, that was a foreshadowing of, I think, you know, would of what would take place uh, by the end of 2021. Liz Cheney was essentially exiled from her party, while Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the chief messengers of the party. But it's clear from both the article, which is excerpted from your your new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, uh, Robert Draper, that you had a pretty civil relationship with her so she's in person what was she like sure and, and yeah I, I did interview her a number of times ian and i just to refine your characterization of my relationship with her is civil in the sense that it was professional um i didn't i'm not a you know a um, 
I'm not an advocacy journalist. I don't, you know, preach any particular point of view. I wanted to understand where she was coming from. And it took, frankly, a year before I was able to sit down, uh, was able to persuade her staff to persuade her in turn to sit down and talk to me off the record, and then in subsequent interviews to talk at length on the record. Green is, you know, <laughs> people think that, that um, she's crazy. I think, you know, a lot of her views really do seem to be crazy, but she's not, you know, um, she, she doesn't foam at the mouth. She can, you know, form literate, literate sentences and even paragraphs. Um, she possesses, you know, uh, a, a Southern charm that she can turn on when it works for her. Uh, and, um, and she certainly tried to impress upon me that a lot of her views aren't so outlandish or, and are in fact embraced by um, people of all sorts of political stripes, including uh, independents and, and even some Democrats. I find that the latter a little bit difficult to believe. And, uh, and in any event, um, uh, you know, the, wh whether any one person may find one thing in the constellation of outrageous policy positions she's espoused and say that one I can more or less agree with does not a broad constituency make. But, uh, but what most made an impression on me about Marjorie Taylor Greene Ian, was that it's evident that she has a lot of influence within the party, way out of proportion to her experience on Capitol Hill. And it's furthermore uh, um, clear that she intends to do something with that influence, that she's not just going to sit back and amass a greater and greater uh, social media following, but that instead she really wants some of her more extreme positions to become the law of the land. Well, you start out your article quoting her, there's going to be a lot of investigations. I've talked to a lot of members about this. So mm -hmm. she's going to be a driving force if indeed on we wake up on November the 9th and find that the Republicans have taken the House and possibly the Senate. Sure. I mean, the first things that will happen, the kind of low-hanging fruit is that if the House um, falls to the Republicans, then the Republicans will control committee assignments, and those committees in turn can uh, can launch into investigations, which, as Green promises, they will surely do, uh, ranging from you know Hunter Biden's laptop to whatever malfeasances they believe have taken place uh, along the southern border of the U.S. and and uh, impeachment proceedings will probably begin using one rationale or another to. Um, uh, to initiate uh, certain impeachment resolutions. And, and it remains to be seen, you know, whether the Republicans are capable of passing any legislation that stands the slightest chance of being the law of the land. I mean, I think that the, the speculation, the speculative question sort of answers itself. I mean, they'll, they'll put up a bunch of show votes. They'll either be dead on arrival in the Senate or um, they won't get signed into law by Biden. Uh, the Democrats will in turn presumably use the behavior of this Republican Congress controlled by the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene to persuade voters that here is your Republican Party. It's not my father's Republican Party anymore. It's instead um, extremely uh, outside the mainstream and use that as a kind of campaign issue. Uh, but, but to me, the, it's indisputable that uh, the likely Speaker of the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, will cede a lot of authority to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, not because he you know, loves her, because he's afraid of her, frankly. He's afraid more specifically of the MAGA base uh, that views her as their standing warrior on Capitol Hill. 
But just in closing, Robert Draper, how much should we be afraid of her? Because as you point out in your article, at a Trump rally in Michigan on October the 1st, the former president claimed, quote, despite great outside dangers, our biggest threat remains the sick, sinister and evil people from within our country. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has echoed that with her ominous warning, Democrats want Republicans dead and they have already started the killings. So a lot of concern out there. First of all, it's a lot of rhetoric on the right, on the far right, about, in effect, wanting a civil war or at least expecting a civil war. So the thing that I find so extraordinary since I covered national security affairs is the extent to which Donald Trump is the continuing instrument of division in this country. And that, you know, that's Putin's strategy is to divide America and turn us against each other. And, and we're obliging him in this way. That's just extraordinary how it continues. And it's actually getting worse. And the ultimate prize for our foreign adversaries would be a civil war in this country. Sure, two or three things. And um, um, first, as I was describing earlier, uh, Trump, as you're saying, very much is the um, intensifier of these polarities, uh, of these divisions in our country, because they benefit him. He's not doing it for any other reason except the, the, how they benefit him politically. Secondly, you know, I think you're correct that um, uh, that that is, in effect, doing Putin's dirty work for him. Um, uh, and that whatever else uh, is bedeviling Putin right now vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, he surely must be smiling, seeing how uh, faith in our democratic institutions and um, a total breakdown of unity uh, uh, are, are all taking place in America. The, the final thing that I'd say is that it, it's probably right to, to, to push to the side, okay, if... Um, if Marjorie Taylor Greene had her entire party platform enacted, it would be a very different looking America for sure. You know, but um, but even if we take into account the likelihood that all of that stuff is dead on arrival, the wholesale demonization of um, of the other side uh, that Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others of their stripe have perfected on the right is altogether different from the stuff that we used to hear in the past from uh, 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 Republicans or Democrats saying about their opponent that they're wrong or wrongheaded or even immoral, casting them as evil, casting them as enemies of the American people, as lacking in patriotism, as, um, as guilty of treasonous conduct on, on such a routine and constant basis. It's a new and disquieting feature in American political life. And, um, and when, you're, when you say about your opponents that they're trying to kill you, you know, they're trying to kill you. The killings, in fact, have already begun. You are, in essence, inviting your supporters to view the stakes in America as existential and to view the climate as one resembling a war. Call it a civil war, call it a holy war, but a war nonetheless. And if that's the case, it really is only a matter of time become, before it becomes a real kind of war with actual bullets and not just words. Well, Robert Draper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Draper, who's been a writer at large for the New York Times magazine since 2008 and a contributing writer for the National Geographic magazine since 2007. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times best-selling bio biography, 
dead certain, the presidency of George W. Bush. And his latest book just out is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And he has the cover article in Sunday's New York Times magazine, The Problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene, What the Rise of the Far-Right Congresswoman Means for the House, the GOP, and the Nation. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the background and credentials of Rishi Sunak, who is the third prime minister in less than two months in a revolving door of British leaders from a deeply unpopular conservative party. Make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Quinn Slobodian, who is a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements and intellectual histories of neoliberalism. He's the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his forthcoming book is Crack Up Capitalism. Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. And he has a recent article at the New York Times, Liz Trusts Believed in Markets, but the Markets Did Not Believe in Her. Welcome to Background Briefing, Quinn Slobodian. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's difficult to keep up with the revolving door of British politics. You wrote about recently about Liz Truss. She only lasted 44 days before resigning and now we learn today that Rishi Sunak uh, will become Britain's next prime minister because the Conservative Party went for him and apparently the possibility of Boris Johnson coming back would have tanked the pound. So what's your sense of this revolving door and how it relates to your new book, Crack Up Capitalism? Because let's face it, ever since they took on Brexit, the British economy and its international standing has been diminished radically and continues to do so. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that since Brexit, this genre of politics has risen to prominence now in the UK and the Conservative Party that is premised on kind of ever larger acts of ideological fidelity to some version of the Thatcherite legacy and the impression that they've given themselves because of what's happened since 2016 is that they can constantly call the bluff on the markets, call the bluff on what they think of as the elites, the technocrats that are telling them they can't um, dive into the brave new global British future that they want to. And with Truss and Sunak, we get kind of two versions of this uh, Thatcherite radical 
politics. I think Truss was more in the vein of a true believer in her sense. She was literally trying to costume herself as the late Margaret Thatcher and um, declare a kind of willingness to thumb her nose at the markets and the, the people who determine things like fiscal responsibility. With Sunak, you get a slightly more tempered version of this. So Sunak is a Stanford MBA. He has a career that's passed through Goldman Sachs, has passed through some prestigious hedge funds in the London area. And on paper, he looks a lot more moderate than trust. He looks a lot more like a calming influence on the markets. But he, too, has a kind of penchant for what you could think of as disruptive acts of capitalist statecraft. So his most signature policy is the creation of these things called free ports, which sort of ring fence parts of British territory and then govern them under different laws, different labor laws, different tax laws than the rest of the country. This was something he proposed well before Brexit, something that he was identified with when he was chancellor and something that we can assume that he'll come back to as prime minister. So even though he has the appearance of a kind of South Asian version of Pete Buttigieg with a British accent, I think the version of capitalism that he's promoting is still one that is premised on some level of the fragmentation of a unitary nation and the acceleration of um, kind of a zero-sum fight for mobile capital. Well, the country looks like it will fragment uh, no matter what. Aren't the Scottish nationalists now just fed up with this paralysis of leadership in the UK and uh, they'd like to go back to the EU? Absolutely. I mean, it's from a kind of electoral polling point of view, it's just real dark apocalyptic hours for the Conservative Party, right? I mean, they're 30 plus points down in the poll where there to be an election tomorrow. They are poll. They would be actually polling behind the Scottish National Party that you just mentioned. So they're absolutely reaping what they sowed in terms of this willingness to court a kind of um, a disruptive politics that that is willing to kind of break long-standing treaty commitments. Obviously, the departure of the EU is an example of that. But if you keep if you keep the idea that one has the right to leave going, then why wouldn't Scotland have the right to leave as well? It's very hard to come up with a, a consistent opposition to that for someone who's taken the Brexit line. So yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly true that this that this act of kind of capitalist radicalism might have accelerated a kind of a larger crack up which will end up producing politics that might be very different from the ones they intended. I mean, the, the Scottish Nationalist Party is much more of a conventional social democratic party, even than the British Labour Party these days. And one can see how they've embraced, for example, these free ports I just mentioned as green free ports that might actually have higher environmental standards, perhaps um, different kinds of taxation, but towards the goal of decarbonization. So, there is a possibility that the kind of the dialectic will take a little spin here and we'll see things that are quite different from the intended outcomes of the original um, initiators of these crack up style politics. So back to Rishi Sunak, who is, I think, one of the wealthiest members of parliament. He's a multimillion dollar hedge fund manager. And of course, when you mentioned he, he did his MBA at Stanford, uh, where he met and married his wife, who happened to be the daughter of an Indian billionaire. So 
he may not be somebody that understands the struggles of average working people in Britain who can't pay their electric bills and uh, having trouble putting food on the table. Yeah, I mean, it really depends what kind of Sunak we end up getting once he takes power. And as chancellor, he definitely changed his tune more than once from a kind of uh, need for the belt tightening austerity to talking about the need for more state spending and leveling up industrial policy. So one is never quite sure, you know, which Sunak you're going to get. But I think that under the constraints of the current moment, it's likely that he's going to take the kind of alibi of the fiscal crisis created by trust and Quarteng themselves, and indeed push more cuts to public spending and the like. He's an odd character from a class point of view, because of course, he's uh, the child of immigrants himself. His parents uh, were both born in Central Africa and fled um, in the 1960s. So he, he does have a kind of a claim to a, a more hard scrabble background. But as you say, he married into an enormous fortune, the founder of Infosys, the Indian tech company is his father-in-law. His wife famously lived for years with a so-called non-dom or a non-domiciled status in the UK. So she was managing to shelter her own wealth um, from the British tax system. So on the one hand, he he scans as a kind of prototypical uh, plutocratic uh, capitalist with no particular allegiance to any territory at all. But on the other hand, he is, uh, by his own avowal, kind of a a deep patriot and and does have his own roots uh, growing up in in England and, and feeling an allegiance to the UK. So I think it it will be possible for him to sell himself as a kind of local boy made good with the same sort of credibility that Trump was able to sell himself as someone who everyone could aspire to, because maybe you too will be able to bootstrap yourself to his kind of wealth. There is that, that sort of misperception that one can, you know, make the right choices and become wealthy that we have in the United States has also been mainstream more and more by the current conservative party as the idea of solidarity becomes ever more tenuous. So I think the sort of the proof will be in in his politicking. And if one is honest, the the deficit that the Tories are looking at right now in popularity because of their bungling of the last month is so great that one can see Sunak as less a sort of transformative leader and more as a kind of a placeholder leader put in to kind of do damage control ahead of the next election. So it's it's unlikely that he'll be someone who sort of sets the tone for conservative politics in the coming years and more likely that he's someone who will just come in and try to sort of glue together as much of the porcelain as they can of the destroyed um, China shop that Truss and Kuarteng left them with. Well, that's the extraordinary thing. Talk about crack-up capitalism. It's largely been a political problem, apart from the fact that Brexit is the original sin that has paralyzed the UK politics and diminished their international standing and economy, and they can't get out from under it, and they still can't get out from under it. But meanwhile, these leadership struggles within the Tory party have paralyzed the, the governance at a time when there are real crises in Europe, particularly Putin's cut off of gas and where mm-hmm. they're going to find alternative supplies, etc. Yeah. So how, just in terms of your new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, the world without mm-hmm. democracy, of course, is the dream of, of another hedge fund billionaire, Peter Thiel, 
who's literally trying to buy mm-hmm. two U.S. Senate seats, one in Ohio and one in Arizona. How uh-huh. much does that kind of uber-libertarianism that basically democracy doesn't work and only laissez-faire capitalism does, is that a mm-hmm. part of the mix in the U.K. amongst the Tories? Yeah, I think another way of thinking about this dream of a world without democracy is to think of a world that's governed the same way that corporations are governed, right, which are not democratic, of course. You have a CEO, you have a board, and then you have shareholders. The world that Thiel has helped build and comes from is very similar to the one that Sunak comes from as a graduate of Stanford, as a habitué of the world of hedge funds and finance. The idea is that you just get inefficiencies by involving too many people. Democracies are not bad in and of themselves, but they end up slowing things down and you make the wrong choices. So there's a kind of fetishization of the authoritarian models of places like Dubai, places like Hong Kong and Singapore, which are seen as having sort of cracked this troublesome problem of democracy and come closer to acting like cities as or countries as corporations. I think that that mentality is absolutely strong inside of the conservative party that one can see that inside of the so-called ultras that really pushed for Brexit, who thought that it was really a question of just unshackling the city of London and the financial sector from Brussels to let it sort of flourish and um, bring home the global wealth that it, that it ought to. And I think what one can really see though, is, is the delusions of this, right? When this actually gets tried to, when this is actually put into practice, one can see the kind of divergence between the ideology, which you know I and other people call neoliberalism, and then the reality of global capitalism. I think that when Trust was pushing through her budget with Quartang, right, she thought that the two things were the same, that you could just incite and intone sort of Thatcherite bromides, and then the world's capitalist markets would lay down at your feet and you know, allow themselves to be pet. But it's quite the opposite, actually. Capitalists are a lot more pragmatic. I mean, if, as you say, if you're, re- if you're facing an energy crisis, you're facing a historical cost of living crisis, if you're facing um, the vanishing of anything that uh, resembles a kind of a profitable or productive business in a place like the United Kingdom, then what you need is investment. What you need is cash transfers. You need energy support. And this, um, this purest dream of libertarianism that someone like Peter Thiel and to a lesser extent Tress and Corteng were operating with, and perhaps Sunak too is, we'll have to see, is one that actually doesn't have any space for the complicated matters of actually winning legitimacy and you know keeping a healthy population alive and employed. It's based on simply the idea of chasing shareholder value and short-term profits rather than cultivating the long-term things that governments actually need to keep their eye on to stay. In office, so I think we're seeing really the kind of collision of that pure corporate governance ideology with the realities of you know humans and all of their messiness. Well, Quinn Slobodian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Absolutely, it was nice to talk. And again, I'll be speaking with Quinn Slobodian, who's a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his forthcoming book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. And he has a recent article at the New York Times, Liz Truss Believed in Markets, but the markets did not believe in her.
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the announcement today by Attorney General Garland of U.S. charges against 10 PRC communist government officials and intelligence officers accused of trying to steal secrets, punish critics and recruit spies. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Xi, a professor of China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He's currently engaged in constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China and is the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Xi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I wanted to talk about the charges announced today by Attorney General Garland against uh, 13 uh, officials and uh, intelligence officers from the People's Republic of China, accusing them of trying to steal secrets and punish critics and recruit spies. But just to touch on the close of the Communist Party Congress, where she basically cemented his rule indefinitely, I suppose, people were quite struck by what happened towards the end there, where the prior Chinese leader, uh, Hu Xintao, appeared to be escorted out. I don't know what happened there. I mean, it was a bit strange. I know they tried to censor it, the Chinese officials, but... Do you think it was an issue of ill health or some kind of protest on Hu Jintao's part? Yeah, so I'm uh, very skeptical of the the pure ill health hypothesis. You know, of course, um, he's not entirely healthy. You know, if you uh, look at him, um, it looked like he had led a very sedentary lifestyle for the past few years. Uh, he, he doesn't look uh, very healthy, but at the same time, he had been performing his duty as a party Congress delegate, um, you know, without a hiccup up to that point. Um, his last official duty was to vote for the new central committee, which he did minutes before he was escorted out. Uh, so if he had been feeling unwell, he could have left, you know, after he voted. Uh, he didn't really have anything else to do. Uh, so he could have left. He could have gotten medical attention, uh, et cetera. But Yet he sat back down. There, there are some new footages uh, that emerge that suggest that he was trying to grab onto a file in front of Xi Jinping to look at it. Uh, and Xi Jinping didn't like that, prevented him from doing so. And then soon after, thereafter, he was escorted out. Uh, 
I don't know if that was indeed the case, uh, but certainly, you know, I think um, there, there was some kind of interaction that transpired there, which displeased uh, Xi Jinping, which might have been the proximate cause of his removal from the party congress. Well, Xi Jinping did make some sort of dark comments about dangerous storms ahead, a grim and complex international situation with external attempts to suppress and contain China, which threatens to escalate at any time. He seems to be in a hurry. He seems to be impatient, particularly over Taiwan. And that his talk about reunifying Taiwan one way or the other got the loudest applause. So what was your just takeaway, Victor? Yeah, uh, so he certainly talked about Taiwan uh, more than in previous speeches, uh, but I, you know, I think the wording of his discussion on Taiwan uh, did not change too much. Uh, you know, of course, he mentioned the episode where uh, the People's Liberation Army acted very decisively. Um, he didn't say Nancy Pelosi's visit, but that's sort of what he was referring to was, you know, after this. Uh, event of Nancy Pelosi's visit. Um, basically, uh, the PLA acted very decisively. Uh, but then, you know, during the discussion on China, uh, Taiwan policies, um, what he said was the same wording as before, which is that as much as possible, uh, China would like to uh, use a peaceful means of unification. But of course, China does not abandon the option of using military force. Um, so that's the same wording as before. So at least the, the option of using military force has not been escalated as an option. Uh, but all that, of course, doesn't mean that China will not use military force. Um, at the end of the day, this is all uh, dependent on Xi Jinping's personal decision. And if he wants to use military force and he, if he deems that uh, it's feasible to do so, he may well use it. So let's turn to today's announcement by the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, uh, along with his Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, and uh, the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, at which he announced the 13 Chinese individuals, 10 of whom are either Chinese Communist government officials or intelligence officers, are involved in schemes to steal secrets, punish critics, and recruit mm -hmm. spies. What's going on here, do you think? Is there any other subtext apart from, I mean, why do you think the AG felt he had to come forward and make this announcement just before an election? Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't want to say this was done for political purposes, but but I thought what uh, there was a little bit of conflation of different kinds of things that China is doing. Uh, on the one hand, I think, you know, China, like the United States, like a lot of other countries, uh, engages in espionage, you know, and certainly the first case that he mentions, uh, trying to bribe uh, a U.S. government official to obtain documents related to the Huawei case, uh, that to me, you know, of course that violates U.S. laws, and, and you know, I'm glad the FBI uh, has cracked down on it and, you know, using confidential informant, uh, but that's just espionage, and I'm sure the United States and other countries engages uh, in it also. Uh, on the other hand, you have cross-border repression, you know, so hiring uh, agents uh, to pressure 
foreign citizens, right? So uh, the children of the corrupt official that China is trying to go after, they are U.S. citizens. So, so you know, Chinese government is hiring agents in the United States to try to pressure, coerce, uh, threaten uh, U.S. citizens to do the biddings of the Chinese government. I think that is way beyond the pale. Um, and uh, it's something that China itself, of course, constantly complains about that, you know, there are imperialist power out there that they are trying to impose their sovereignty on other countries. Here we have a clear case of the Chinese government trying to impose its sovereignty on another country. Um, so I think that kind of stuff is very different from, you know, normal espionage. Uh, of course, you know, it's the job of, FD, of the FBI to investigate and crack down on espionage of foreign governments. Um, but I think this kind of cross-border uh, imposition of jurisdiction, meddling in the internal politics of other countries during elections and other things, um, that's really in a different category. Uh, and, and in a way, I wish they had dealt with those two kinds of issues separately. Well, the other possibility is that, it, uh, in terms of coincidences, is that it happened just after the close of the Chinese Communist Party Congress, right? Do you think that's a, a shot across the bow against Xi? Because Xi, you can see that the situation is hardening in terms of military competition and political competition, mm -hmm. economic competition, wolf warrior diplomacy, etc. I think, as I said earlier, I think Xi is impatient and in a hurry. And when he talks about stormy waters and choppy seas, I think that's what's in store for us, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, certainly during his speech at the beginning of the Congress, Xi Jinping, um, you know, engaged in a pretty long discussion on technology, uh, the technological competition between the U.S. and China. Um, and of course, a lot of the legal channels for China to obtain technologies from the United States have now been closed off, including the latest uh, decree from uh, the U.S. government that U.S. citizens cannot work uh, in a semiconductor or AI related company in China. Um, and so I think that will, of course, uh, motivate the Chinese government to redouble their illegal efforts to obtain technology from the United States. So I think the timing, um, perhaps, of announcing this case perhaps is timed uh, according to the Party Congress, but not to kind of, you know, uh, show Xi Jinping up, uh, but really to, you know, because Xi Jinping did make a big deal about obtaining uh, cutting-edge technology for China. Uh, really is um, kind of a signal from the U.S. government that the U.S. has taken notice of that and that uh, the U.S. will fight every step of the way to prevent China from obtaining technologies illegally. So what do you expect, uh, Victor Xi, in terms of the next few years? I mean, we don't know how long I mentioned, you know, Xi could be in there for, what, a decade, right? Oh, it could be potentially even longer. You know, the longest serving, well, the longest surviving party delegate who attended the party congress, uh, the guy is 105. So, you know, if she were to reach the age of 105, we've got another 35 years to go, 36 <laughs> years to go. Uh, so potentially a, a very long tenure there. Um, you know, so the, the problem is that he has complete dictatorship. Um, if any policies were to go wrong, 
it's very hard to correct it because people below him are not going to want to tell him the truth, are not going to want to point out that his policies are failing. And because he also can't really go, he did a little bit of this during the Congress where he's like, oh, you know, China was in a complete mess 10 years ago before I took power and I made everything better. He really can't do that anymore, you know, as time goes on, because, you know, he has been in charge for, for the past decade. And then five years from now, he will have been in charge for, you know, 15 years. So if anything goes wrong, he has no one else to blame but himself. And of course, his sick, his uh, underlings who, um, you know, got to where they are today by always agreeing with Xi Jinping, always supporting his policies, they're not going to change what they do. They will always agree with him. So even when bad policies are made, um, they will continue until a truly catastrophic outcome happens. Um, So I think this kind of blind side uh, is going to be with the Chinese leadership for, for some time to come. Well, Victor Xi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great. Thank you. Good talking to you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Victor Xi, who's a professor in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He's currently engaged in constructing a large database of biographical information on elites in China and is the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by hell.